Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 125, Dr. Robert M. Bowman's What About This View? Thanks to those of you who have responded to what was in episode number 124, my challenge to Jesus is God apologists. I have got some responses, some very thoughtful, some very aggressive. If you want to see what the responses have been so far, I've got them listed in comments below that blog post. I do plan in a future episode to discuss some of those comments and also how I know some of my fellow analytic theologians slash Christian philosophers would respond to the challenge. In this episode of the Trinity's Podcast, I'm going to discuss an interesting little article that I've wanted to discuss for some time. What about this view? How to Defend an Anti-Trinitarian Theology. It's by evangelical apologist Robert M. Bowman Jr., who I had the privilege of interviewing for episodes 107 and 108. What I'm going to do is in the first segment, I'll read through it, I'll present it to you uninterrupted and in its entirety so that you can get the whole effect. And then after a little break, I'll come back and I'll respond to it piece by piece. I think there are a lot of good points here, although there are a few things that I would disagree with, and I think you'll enjoy this virtual discussion. Of course, on the blog post for this episode, I have the link to this article. It's on Dr. Bowman's main website, which is bib.irr.org. It's the Institute for Religious Research. Here then, Dr. Bowman's article, What About This View? How to Defend an Anti-Trinitarian Theology. If you do not believe the doctrine of the Trinity and favor another view yourself, I am going to give you some free advice. I am going to tell you exactly what you need to do in order to defend your non-Trinitarian position as a superior alternative to the Trinitarian view. I know this is very generous of me, but in the interests of full disclosure, I think it only fair to make this information available to the opponents of the doctrine of the Trinity. Number one. Refute one or more of the essential propositions of the doctrine of the Trinity. In my outline study of the biblical basis of the doctrine of the Trinity, I explain that the doctrine is simply a systemization of six core propositions that are all based directly on the teaching of the Bible. 1. There is one God, i.e., one proper subject of religious devotion. 2. This one God is a single divine being, called Jehovah or Yahweh in the Old Testament, the Lord. 3. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is God, the Lord. 4. The Son, Jesus Christ, is God, the Lord. 5. The Holy Spirit is God, the Lord. 6. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each someone distinct from the other two. In order to defend an alternative position, you must refute at least one of these premises, or you must show that all six of these propositions are consistent with another theological position besides the Trinity. I do not think the latter is possible, and in fact I do not know of any non-Trinitarian theology that affirms all six propositions, at least not without some heavy equivocation. So for all practical purposes, if you're going to defend another view in place of the Trinity, you'll have to refute one of the above premises. Number two present a clear alternative to the doctrine of the Trinity. Constantly carping at things about the Trinity that you don't like, can't understand, and won't accept is not enough. 
you must tell us what we should believe instead. Your position must be specific and cover the same basic issues that are addressed in the doctrine of the Trinity. Number three, identify the religion associated with that alternative to Trinitarian Christianity. It's no good telling us that you believe X, Y, and Z instead of the Trinity if this, quote, alternative is your own private confection of beliefs. I say this because the true doctrine of God will be held by a community of believers in Jesus Christ, by the Church. Theologies do not exist in a vacuum or in isolation. You are either part of a Church that teaches the theology you espouse, or you are picking and choosing what you will believe from others and not committing yourself to a way of life that puts a set of teachings into practice. Jesus Christ said that he would be with his people until the end of the age as they engaged in the work of making disciples, baptizing, and teaching them. Matthew 28, 19-20 So, what people today are Christ's people? This question has become acutely relevant in the internet age in which many individuals appear to be one-man religions trolling the web to attack orthodox Christian beliefs, often loudly and aggressively, but who are unprepared to identify a belief system they accept and a community that represents that belief system. Number four, show that your alternative theology does not suffer from the defects you claim to find in Trinitarianism. For example, A, if you criticize the doctrine of the Trinity for developing in the 4th century, identify the religious tradition or movement that predated the 4th century that you think had and has the truth. B. If you criticize the doctrine of the Trinity for its use of extra-biblical language, show that your theology consistently avoids the use of all extra-biblical words. This is much harder than just about all anti-Trinitarians think. C. If you criticize the doctrine of the Trinity for being influenced by non-Christian philosophy or religion, show that your theology is completely free of such influences. Again, this is easier said than done. D. If you criticize the doctrine of the Trinity for being difficult to understand, show that your theology is free of anything incoherent, confusing, paradoxical, or mysterious. Number 5. Demonstrate that your theology explains the full range of biblical information better than the doctrine of the Trinity. This means showing that your view accounts for a wider range of biblical material based on sound exegesis of the texts with a minimum of ad hoc reasoning. In other words, it is not enough to argue that certain texts might be translated so as to avoid the Trinity, or that other texts need not be interpreted in a Trinitarian fashion. Rather, you must show that your non-Trinitarian view is the best reading of more biblical texts than can be claimed on the Trinitarian side. Of course, everyone is likely to run into a text or two that is more difficult to cohere with their position, but the right view will have fewer of these difficulties. Note, all such argumentation will have to contrast the anti-Trinitarian alternative with the doctrine of the Trinity as it is actually taught in serious works of theology, not your own oversimplistic or fractured impression of what the doctrine means. Good luck! When the Trinity's podcast returns, I'll respond to Dr. Bowman's five points.
since I'm a professor, I'm going to start out this discussion with a pedantic and not entirely relevant point, but I do think it is a point worth making. In his title, Dr. Bowman uses the word anti-Trinitarian, and then he quickly says non-Trinitarian. Let's just notice that these terms are not quite the same. An anti-Trinitarian is somebody who is rejecting, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity, it can, in fact, be somebody who is merely reactionary. They're just reacting against what they think is a ridiculous or incoherent view. You can be anti-Trinitarian and not have any coherent theology of your own. A non-Trinitarian is just someone who, whatever their theology is, they don't believe in a tripersonal God. They're not necessarily anti-Trinitarian. You can be non-Trinitarian without being anti-Trinitarian. Here's one way. Maybe you never heard of the Trinity. There are some people like that now, and in the past, there have been great numbers of Christians like that. Contrast both of those terms with the term Unitarian. In a Christian context, this refers to someone who thinks that the one God is the Father. Full stop. Unitarians think that the one God is a who, and the Father is that who, and no one else is. A Unitarian, then, presumably is somebody who has a somewhat developed, somewhat coherent approach to thinking about God, and it's an approach on which God is a certain great self, a single one, not three of them together somehow. So in this way, Unitarian is a kind of positive term. It's meant to positively describe the person's position based on what they're saying, not based on what they're denying. Non-Trinitarian is a neutral term. There's no problem with that. It just means you're not a Trinitarian. It could be because you never heard of Trinity theories, or it could be because you're a Unitarian. Anyway, there's no problem with that. Anti-Trinitarian raises my hackles a little bit. I do think the term perfectly well fits some people, particularly some of the cranks on the internet that Dr. Bowman is complaining about in this article. And so, if you're just reacting against the Trinity, what? what's that? I, I don't get it. That's weird. That's, that's stupid. That's, that's three gods. I don't like that. If somebody is just kind of ignorantly reacting without really looking into it, really understanding what the Trinitarian is saying, what he's not saying, okay, fine, call him an anti-Trinitarian. But I wouldn't term a lot of Unitarians that I've interacted with as anti-Trinitarians. Myself, I've never been an anti-Trinitarian. I was brought up evangelical, and I just assumed, well, the Trinity's on the books. We must believe this. I'm not quite sure what it is, but it must be really important. It's on the books. Then I looked into it some, but I didn't become an anti-Trinitarian. Rather, I was trying to parse the official statements in ways that made sense, in ways that were self-consistent, and in ways that were consistent with the Bible. And eventually, I became a Unitarian because I came to the conviction that the Bible identifies the one God with the Father himself and not with anyone else. I came to see a conflict between Trinity theories and the New Testament. So I went from being a Trinitarian to being a non-Trinitarian, that is, more specifically, a Unitarian. I skipped the whole anti-Trinitarian stage. I've never been one. What I say to my Trinitarian brothers and sisters is just, if you think that's correct, then believe that. If that's what helps you best sort out the New Testament, then that's what you should believe. However, I would like you to consider a few objections. 
And I would like you to realize that there was a time when there was Christianity and there wasn't any Trinitarian theology, not properly speaking, but I'll come to that in a minute. So I don't claim that Dr. Bowman's trying to get any undue mileage out of the term anti-Trinitarian, suggesting that all non-Trinitarians are ignorant or just reactionary, or that they're denying the obvious. I just wanted to make that threefold distinction, though. What then about Dr. Bowman's first point? He says, if you're going to defend some non-Trinitarian theology, you need to refute one of these six claims. There's one God, this is a single being, it's the Father, it's the Son, it's the Spirit, and the Father, Son, and Spirit are each someone distinct from the other two. The first point to make about these is these six sentences that he has are not sufficient to determine any one doctrine. There are, in fact, many dueling doctrines, many incompatible doctrines that all six of these leave on the table. There are Trinitarians that I call three self-Trinitarians. What they call, quote, God is just a community or a composite which contains three divine beings. Also agreeing to various understandings, various parsings of these six claims would be what I call one self-Trinitarians, these are people who strongly emphasize that the term person is misleading, and they suggest the term person should be replaced with something like mode of being. So then you would just have one God, which lives in three different ways, which sort of has three different personalities or something like that. They're saying that the Trinity is a single self. They're totally contradicting people who say there are exactly three selves there, and the whole Trinity isn't a self. And there's my friend and co-blogger, Mr. Chad McIntosh, who's a PhD student in philosophy, and he suggested that there are two senses that can be given to the term person, and that the Trinitarians should say, in one sense, there are three persons in the Trinity, and in another sense of the term, there is one person there. Now, contradicting all these, there are what I call negative mysterians. They strongly refuse to give any model of what the Trinity means, and they refuse to give any comparison between the Trinity and other things. They give you the language, they refuse to interpret it. They say, if you think you know what the Trinity means, then you're surely actually assenting to some heretical claim. And they're basically saying that this kind of stupefaction is an insight. They're glorying in the unintelligibility of their statements. Other Mysterians that I call positive Mysterians, they don't try to give you some scheme for understanding one through six in a self-consistent manner. They say, that can't be done. You can't parse them out in a way that shows how they're consistent, those six claims. They seem to be an inconsistent set, but that's okay. It's okay to believe what is apparently contradictory if each individual claim is strongly supported by scripture or tradition, or both. Needless to say, that's a radical approach. That's typically an approach held by Reformed Christians, people in the broadly Calvinist wing of Protestantism. You have other Reformed Christians who just strongly reject that. They say that's just to give in to incoherence. That's just to accept what, for all we can tell, are real contradictions. That's no good. So that kind of Mysterianism is also controversial with Trinitarians. And then you've got the sophisticated relative identity Trinitarians, people like Peter Geach, and I won't even try to explain what he's up to in this podcast. 
I'll just have to refer you to Trinity's podcast, episode number 68, where Dr. Harriet Baber explains this approach in some detail. Another closely related way of understanding the Trinity is by means of constitution theory. They compare the relationship between the divine nature and the persons of the Trinity to the relationship between a lump of clay and a statue made of clay that's composed of that lump, where they say the lump constitutes the statue. However, I have to tell you, they end up redefining monotheism. So it's not the claim that there is exactly one God, it's the claim that any gods there are share one divine nature, which isn't quite the same. I've got a whole paper on that type of Trinity theory. I'll put a link for it on the blog post for this episode. So there are other views as well, but my point is there are a crowd of competing theories, all of which would try to account for Dr. Bowman's six sentences. Of course, they would interpret those sentences somewhat differently. Perhaps the most obvious unclarity there is what's meant by saying that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. What kind of is is it? It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. Is it the is of identification, like Barry Obama just is Barack Obama? Those are one and the same. Or the morning star just is the evening star. It's just the planet Venus. That's what both of those terms refer to. Or is it the is of predication? When you say that something is God, you're saying that it is a God, or at least that it is divine in some sense. There are other is's too, like the is of composition or the is of representation, but I'm not going to go into those now. It's part of a typical evangelical apologist perspective that there is a doctrine of the Trinity. I deny that. A doctrine is something that can be true or false. A doctrine is something that can be understood and expressed in a non-equivocal way. When you just have a bunch of sentences that can bear various interpretations, you haven't done enough to specify a single doctrine yet. There are going to be competing doctrines, all of which are interpretations of those same sentences. How did this mess come about? It came about because the Catholic Church made this language mandatory at a time when there was not universal agreement among Christians about whether that was good language. I'm talking about the language of the 381 Council here specifically, the Council of Constantinople. There was still a lot of disagreement about that language among small-c Catholic, that is, 4th century mainstream Christians. Some thought that language was innovative and misleading and confusing and not helpful. Others understood it in certain ways and thought it was good language. Others also thought it was good language, but understood it in different ways. Well, a Roman emperor came along and said, this is what you must confess. This is your official language. If you disagree, I'll kick you out of being a bishop. I'll take away your church. And basically, you've become an enemy of the state. Well, we're still arguing about whether these are good formulas, and if they are good formulas, what the correct way to interpret them is. What's my response to these six? My basic response would be to deny four, which says that the Son, Jesus Christ, is God, that is, the Lord. That sounds like an identification to me. I gave an argument in episode 124, specifically steps 1, 2, and 3, against that. They can't be identical because there are differences between Jesus and God. 
if that's to be understood as predicating divinity or full deity of Jesus, well, I also have an argument against that. That's steps four through nine in the argument that I explained last time. Jesus can't be God in the same way that Yahweh is God. He can't be divine in that way because the Father is divine in that way, and Jesus isn't the Father, and there's only one being that's divine in that way. So if Jesus is divine, and I think there are some senses in which you can say that Jesus is divine, well, it's not that way, not in the sense where that implies that you are the one God. I think that five and six are problematic too, but this matter of scriptural language about God's Spirit and the Holy Spirit I think is complicated. I'm not going to go into it too much. I would refer you to Trinity's podcast episodes number 25 and 26, where I discuss this with Pastor Sean Finnegan. And one point about proposition number one, he says, there is one God that is one proper object of religious devotion. Well, those are two different claims. It's one thing to claim that there is one God. It's another thing to claim that there's only one thing that can be worshipped. I think there is only one God, and that's Yahweh himself, the one Jesus calls Father. But I think Christians are to worship both God and the Son of God, like you see perhaps most clearly in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And I say a lot more about this and objections to it in my talk called Who Should Christians Worship? I'll put a link for that on this blog post. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Bowman's second and third points... Bowman's second point is that a serious, non-Trinitarian thinking Christian needs to present a clear alternative to the doctrine of the Trinity. Here is my big response to that. Yep, he's completely right. It's not enough just to complain about Trinitarian speculations, how difficult they are, how obscure they are, how controversial they are, how tenuously related to the Bible some of them are. Right, okay, vent your spleen, but then... Yeah, what do we have that's better? Do we have anything that's better? And is it developed enough to explain what the Trinitarians are trying to explain, which is the whole testimony of Scripture? He's exactly right. This rival theology needs to be better. It should suffer from fewer problems, and it should make better sense of the sources. Dr. Bowman's third point is that the non-Trinitarian needs to identify the religion associated with this alternative theology. Clearly, Dr. Bowman is irritated by Protestants who are just freewheeling it. Well, this is what I think. And his basic point is that Jesus founded a church, a movement that was going to succeed. And so where are these people that are holding what you claim is the revealed theology? Now, I think he has a point here, but honestly, this is demanding too much. Why does God's message in all of its fullness and clarity have to be perfectly represented by some one institution and some one big, long-lasting body of people? I think that's a Roman Catholic and an Eastern Orthodox view. If you think Peter was the first pope and you trace the lineage of bishops back to Peter's time, which doesn't work, but anyway, if that's your view... 
then you're going to say, well, the Roman Catholic Church is the only candidate for being this institution which God founded. The Eastern Orthodox view is similar. They think the Roman Catholics branched off from them. A Protestant had better be careful with this line of argument, though. Think if we had tried to make this demand earlier in history. Imagine that someone made this demand of Jesus. Now, Jesus had a lot of controversial opinions about how to interpret the law and how to understand Jewish theology, right? So which was the group that he agreed with? Was he a Sadducee? Was he a Pharisee? Was he a Zealot? Was he a Herodian? Was he an Essene? Well, I would say none of the above. Seems to have been most sympathetic to the Pharisees in that they believed in miracles and afterlife and angels and resurrection. They took the law seriously, and he thought that was right for Jews to take the law seriously. So, I mean, he was closest to their camp, but he had some really harsh things to say about the Pharisees. You wouldn't want to say that Jesus was a Pharisee full stop. He has some just brutal criticisms of them. I don't mean unfair. I assume they were fair. Now, why would God let this happen? Why would God reveal the law to Moses? And then at one point, the Jews had practically lost and forgotten the law, and then it had to be rediscovered and revived in the time of Josiah. That's what the Bible says. Why did God let all of these mistaken ideas and mistaken practices characterize Judaism by the time of Jesus? I don't know. This is an aspect of the problem of evil for Christians and for Jews. From a Protestant perspective, why did God allow mainstream Christianity to be hijacked by the bishops and then by the Pope? Why did he allow mainstream Christianity to endorse the worship of saints and endorse Christian idolatry? I don't know. Why did he allow the mainstream to elevate human authorities like councils, papal bulls, and so on, up to a level of scripture or apostolic teaching? I don't know. I wish I did know. He allows a lot of bad stuff in the world. I mean, you could start by saying that he allows us to have some control over our affairs and he allows us to mess things up, us being the human race, but also Christ's followers. But that doesn't give you any kind of specific answer on those specific questions. Dr. Bowman, with your evangelical views, with your understanding of Scripture, what if we transported you back in time to the year 800 or the year 1300, and then someone you know, has a conversation with you about your theology and says, well, that's kind of outrageous stuff, Buster. I'd like to know, where's this alternative community that agrees with you? Sola Scriptura? Faith alone? What, no pope, no bishop? Are you kidding me? Where are you coming up with this stuff, bro? Show me the group that teaches that. Well, you're going to say, well, there's not one. Although I think mainstream Catholic Christianity has preserved a lot of the truths that I think are important. But still, the whole set, I mean, I'm the only one, at least for a couple hundred more years. What if somebody had put this objection to Martin Luther? Well, I think he'd be similarly embarrassed. Now, here's one little stab of an answer. I think we should expect that God would preserve the essential teachings that have been revealed, the core essence of the message, 
that which needed to be believed in order for people to be saved. It would be a big surprise if God let that be lost. As I explain in Trinity's podcast number 85, called Heretic, Four Approaches to Dropping H-Bombs, I don't think that the message ever was completely lost. I think that mainstream Christianity always taught that there was one God, that this God sent his Messiah, a real man. This Messiah died as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of humanity, and God raised him and exalted him and put him in charge, and someday this Messiah is coming back. What I see as the essence of Christian teaching is basically what's presented in Acts. Now, you can add all kinds of stuff to this. Oh, and by the way, you can't do anything without the bishop. Oh, and by the way, you really will find it helpful to have Mary as a mediator also. Oh, by the way, you need to obey this and that rules that we've come up with now. You can add a lot of things to that, and the core message is still there. Some of those things aren't that relevant to the core message. Some tend to kind of get in its way and distort it and warp it or prevent people from understanding it. So some of them are a problem, even if they're strictly consistent with it. Some of those things you add in are not going to be consistent with the core message. But what Protestants should think that God has revealed is not a full-blown and fully developed theology or Christology. That's theoretical work that's been left up to us. What you would think is fully revealed is just the essential beliefs that a person needs to have to be saved. And presumably these will be simple enough for a kindergartner or at least a second grader to understand. I will grant Dr. Bowman this much, though. It'd be a big surprise if some guy living in his parents' basement in the year 2015 suddenly recovered the lost gospel. If he came up with some interpretation of Christian theology which no one had come up with before or which had been lost since the first century. I mean, really, what's the chance of that? Millions of competent people have studied the Bible. What's the chance that you just discovered the correct way to make it all come out just now? Right, that seems pretty improbable. And also, you would expect there to be some pockets of people with at least very similar views to whatever you're coming up with. If indeed, that is the proper way to understand Christian theology. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Bowman's final two points. Dr. Bowman's fourth point is, show that your alternative theology does not suffer from the defects you claim to find in Trinitarianism. Yes, exactly. Why make a lateral move? If you're going to make a move, it needs to be to something better, right? Let's go through his examples. First, he says, you don't like that the Trinity developed in the fourth century. What's the religious tradition before that that has it right? Well, again, I think the core message was always there. Now, if this question would be specifically about my own biblical Unitarian views, I think that they're expressed in the New Testament, and I think that they were common, although there probably wasn't a lot of theoretical clarity about all these matters. 
Still, I think they were common in the first and second centuries. Once the Logos theory comes along in roughly the second half of the second century, then things began to shift. Still, they're agreeing with me that the one God is just the Father himself. That is the one Lord Almighty. That's Yahweh, the Father. But they're now speculating that Jesus existed before his human life and even was the mediator of creation. That's a Unitarian view. It's a Unitarian view that some still have. It's not quite my view. But a very careful look at the history also shows us that there was pushback, namely in the second half of the 100s and in the first half of the 200s. There were various rival theologies offered against the Logos theories. These were called monarchians, people who said we uphold the monarchy of God. These people said, well, you're positing there are two creators, but God, the Father, is the one creator. There's only one creator, right? So we disagree that God had to have this assistant in the form of the pre-human Jesus, this Logos. And they interpreted John 1 and Philippians 2 and other passages that people now think have to do with incarnation. They interpreted those differently. It's intensely obscure what they thought because the sources are basically lost now. And I don't think there was one really developed theory that they were offering. I think they were reacting against the different Logos theories in different ways. But yeah, so I think those guys had it more right than the Logos theorists. But even the Logos theorists were Unitarians, so I think they had the point about God right. I think they were speculating a little too much on the subject of Christology. Dr. Bowman's second example, if you criticize the doctrine of the Trinity for its use of extra-biblical language, show that your theory doesn't do that. Well, you shouldn't do that. That's dumb. I mean, newfangled language can be helpful or it can be harmful, sure. And if we're going to introduce new language, we want it to be something that aids understanding rather than obscures matters. Right. But just the fact of using non-biblical language, that's not an objection against someone's theology. Terms like omnipotence, omnibenevolence, omniscience, these are not in the Bible, but they're perfectly good theological terms. Third point, if you criticize the Trinity for being influenced by non-Christian philosophy of religion, show that your theology is completely free of such influences. Well... You shouldn't criticize the Trinity for that. Look, we've all been influenced by various non-Christian cultural elements, be they art, music, and philosophy. There is some influence from Greek philosophy, even in the New Testament. Not a lot, in my opinion, but there is some there in the terminology that's used and how they think about God. Look, the pagans aren't wrong about everything. So the fact that you're influenced by pagans doesn't show that your theory is wrong. His fourth point is that if you think the Trinity is difficult to understand, paradoxical, confusing, show that your theory isn't. Yeah, I agree. I'm not sure anyone only criticized the Trinity for being difficult to understand. Some people will criticize specific Trinity theories for being self-contradictory. Some of them are... Others are not, or aren't obviously self-contradictory. I don't think there's anything incoherent or paradoxical about my own theology. The one God is the Father. Jesus is the virginally conceived human Messiah. 
who's now raised to God's right hand. This is, of course, not to say that we can completely understand God, either God's ways or God's attributes. Dr. Bowman's fifth point is this, demonstrate that your theology explains the full range of biblical information better than the doctrine of the Trinity. I would say there's something very important and right about this and something wrong about it. What's right is, yes, the Bible is what needs to be accounted for. As the Reformer said, back to the sources. If the sources don't support your speculations, then maybe you need to consider if you have any good grounds for your speculations. This argument about what best fits the Bible, about what best explains what the biblical authors say and what they don't say, this is the argument that biblical Unitarians like me are eager to have with all comers. The reason we became biblical Unitarians is because we examined particularly the New Testament and were convinced that Unitarian theology made the best sense of it. Now, is this theology better than the doctrine of the Trinity? Again, there isn't one doctrine there. This language is amorphous. It's unclear in its meaning. The meaning of it has always been disputed whenever open discussion and argument about it have been permitted. Here's the thing. For large swaths of Christian history, this discussion hasn't been permitted. At first, as I mentioned, in the years 380 and 381, a Roman emperor intervened and simply shut down discussion. Christianity that didn't comply with the creed that they approved in 381 was simply made illegal. Now, these times have passed when it's illegal to discuss competing interpretations of Christian theology. Still, there's great fear on the topic. People are afraid that if they look into it, they'll find it doesn't make sense. People are afraid that if they don't believe in the Trinity, whatever that is, they'll go to hell. So, better to not look into it. There's just painful confusion all around there. You get turned around one way and the other. I mean, what good is it going to do? And aren't these people who are rejecting it rationalists anyway? People who just refuse to believe things they can't fully understand. Well, no. You need to read some more of these people and not just accept that ignorant critique. There's a long parade of people, particularly since the Protestant Reformation, who have said, Trinity, huh? Well, let's look really carefully at the Bible and see what the grounding is there for the Trinity. Let's see how you get from the New Testament to the Trinity. And then after trying their hardest, they say, wait, it can't be done. I guess when traditions clash with Scripture, you have to go with Scripture. That's the main thrust of non-Trinitarian Christian theology. It never has been just a general aversion to mysteries or paradoxes or something like that. Now back to this matter of the doctrine of the Trinity. Again, there's not one doctrine, there are different doctrines. And these different doctrines are going to fare differently when it comes to explaining the biblical text. So if you have a three-self-trinity theory and you look at, say, the baptism of Jesus, you say, okay, I see three divine beings in action there. One of them saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. One of them, the human one, is getting baptized and one of them is coming down upon the baptized man. I see a dance, a coordinated action of three beings there, three divine beings. The one-self-trinitarian is going to have to make sense of this as all the action of oneself. 
So God himself is getting baptized and then he's saying to himself, this is my son. And then he's also uh, in one mode interacting with the other mode. He's coming down as the spirit on himself. These do not fare equally well. The personal relationship you see between Jesus and the Father is hard to account for on a oneself view. Or if you're going to take a kind of mysterious line where you say, well, we don't really know what God is three of. I mean, we say person because we don't know what else to say. We got to have some term for whatever God is three of. Well, they're going to have a hard time making sense of the scriptures as well. Look, the Father and Son talk to one another. And according to the Gospels, they cooperate with one another. And one gives orders to the other who obeys him. Those seem like selves. It seems disingenuous to say, well, I don't know what kind of things those are. It's the kind of thing which has a first-person point of view, which has knowledge and will, which makes choices, which performs intentional actions. Those are what kind of things the Father and Son are, right? And they're two different ones of those. They're two different selves. So one self-interpretation, three self-interpretation of the Trinity... The no-self interpretations that are mysterious and refuse to say whether there are any selves there, they fare differently in explaining what's in the Bible. This is papered over by talking about the doctrine, as if there is a single doctrine there, rather than a single set of approved language. Now here's the thing. It's actually very hard to show that your theology best explains all of the available data. All of the available data is the Bible, which is a big library full of books. And to show that it's the best explanation, you have to put it up against all of its rivals. But the rivals are not the Trinity and then some one non-Trinitarian theology there are a couple of somewhat different Unitarian theologies, and there's a whole slew of different Trinitarian theologies. And so it's really quite difficult to, in any full sense, compare the whole crowd and show that one comes out the best. How many theories do you have to compare? Uh, I don't know. I haven't counted them all, but I mean, it's definitely more than half a dozen. It's probably more than ten. Well, who has done this? Who has examined all of Scripture and all or most of these theories to show which one is the overall best explanation of those facts? I'm not sure anyone has fully done it. I don't think any Trinitarian has done it. Trinitarians in about the last 200 years just willfully ignore non-Trinitarian theologies. They, for the most part, tell themselves that Christian theology is just by definition Trinitarian. So why would anybody care about a non-Trinitarian, supposedly Christian theology? Well, I think you should care because there were no Trinitarian theologies, properly speaking, until around the end of the 4th century. So Christians managed to get by in the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Christian centuries and part of the 4th Christian century without believing that God is tripersonal, that God consists of three persons, each of which shares the divine essence. They believed in various ways in the deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit. There was still plenty of disagreement about those things, but they weren't, properly speaking, Trinitarians. There are some recent Unitarian sources and some historical ones that really go through the scriptures with some completeness in order to show that their theory is best making sense of the whole thing. Just off the top of my head, 
the books of Anthony Buzzard, The Doctrine of the Trinity, Christianity's Self-Inflicted Wound, and his later book, Jesus Was Not a Trinitarian. He gives a pretty complete coverage to Scripture. Then there's the book, One God and One Lord, Reconsidering the Cornerstone of the Christian Faith by Grazer, Lynn, and Shaneheit. This book is very complete. It covers all of the texts that most concern Trinitarians and that Trinitarians most insist upon. And, at least in many cases, gives satisfying Unitarian interpretations of those. There's Patrick Novice's Divine Truth or Human Tradition. Also, fairly complete. He doesn't take a stand on all issues, doesn't discuss all Trinity theories, but that's incredibly difficult to discuss all Trinity theories, or even most of them. Another excellent older book is called Scripture Proofs and Scriptural Illustrations of Unitarianism, and this is by John Wilson, 3rd edition from 1846. He has a section on God, on Christ, on the Holy Spirit, on verses that people appeal to to support a tripersonal or a triune God, the issue of the deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit. It's a very complete coverage with an index of scriptures discussed in the end. That's a book I can recommend to anybody who's seriously thinking about these things. Along with Dr. Bowman's advice, I would add this. If you think maybe you should be a Unitarian Christian, it's foolish to try to reinvent the wheel. Don't run out and write a book explaining what the correct understanding of all these scriptures is. First, you need to hunker down and spend five or ten years reading what previous Christians have discovered about the right way to understand various passages. Any Christian, be they conservative or liberal, be they Trinitarian or Unitarian, be they recent or historical, you're not going to sit down and write a book in three months that's just going to sort all this out. Many people have tried that, and there are a number of other good Unitarian Christian books I could mention, but Unitarians have managed to lose out on the Academy. And until they get back into that game, many ordinary Christians are just going to dismiss them and assume that they're just cranks and conspiracy theorists. And part of your work also is, as Dr. Bowman says at the end of his piece, you'll have to refute the Trinity theories that are seriously taught in theology and not, he says, your oversimplistic or fractured impression of what the Trinity amounts to. So you have to look into the history of it, you have to look into the current reality of how these formulas are interpreted. Today's thinking music has been the track Desert Castles by Little Glass Men. You can listen to or download this whole track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. We got a new review at the end of January in the U.S. iTunes store. A user named Mr. Captain Reginald says, My favorite heretic, and gives us four out of five stars. He or she says, quote, I found this podcast on a whim and thoroughly enjoyed the first episodes. I strongly disagree with Tuggy's views, but I couldn't even tell until about 10 episodes in. Tuggy is one of the most balanced and objective interviewers I have heard. The level of philosophical precision is a breath of fresh air amongst so many shallow podcasts. End quote. Mr. Captain Reginald, thank you very much for this review. We'll gladly take four out of five stars. About me being a heretic, 
may I recommend podcast episode number 85, in which I discuss different approaches to this idea of heresy. In my view, I'm not a heretic because I affirm the essential doctrines of the gospel that you see in the New Testament. Perhaps you disagree, perhaps you're Catholic or Orthodox, but if you're a Protestant, that's the argument I would make to you in podcast 85. If you'd like to leave us a review in the iTunes store for your country, you can find directions on how to do that at trinities.org slash blog slash review. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share us on social media, whether that's Facebook or Pinterest or Twitter. And please keep those responses coming to episode 124 to my challenge to Jesus is God apologists. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.